Nancy Drew has a lot of famous fans, everyone from Hillary Clinton and Oprah Winfrey to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and our own queen, Judy Bloom, has referenced Nancy as a major influence and inspiration. So why do these books feel so sticky and complicated every time we come back to them on this show? Once again, we try to figure it out today, this time with a focus on the third book in the series, The Bungalow Mystery. The book is credited to Carolyn Keene, but as you might already know if you're a Nancy Drew historian, there wasn't actually an author named Carolyn Keene. So there's that. In The Bungalow Mystery, Nancy, as usual, faces her fair share of peril, starting with a near shipwreck situation on the literal first page. Luckily, Nancy and her friend Helen are saved by a girl named Laura Pendleton, who has recently lost her mother and is dealing with some drama related to her new guardians, the Aborns. Nancy, obviously, wants to help get to the bottom of said drama. Toss in a case her father Carson Drew is working on related to investment securities fraud, and our girl detective is about to be very, very busy. Over the next hour, you will hear my guests and I discuss what it is about Nancy that empowers and endures, as well as the many questions we had about this book. Like, do kid readers really care this much about estate law and bank theft? And why does every single person believe anything Nancy says? We do a deep dive on Carson Drew, swap our concerns about Nancy's privilege and tendency to jump to quick assumptions, and unpack some of the tropes about gender we see in the bungalow mystery. There is also the matter of the lack of diversity to get to. This episode is absolutely full of thoughtful stuff. I had so much fun chatting with today's guest, Kate Spencer, and I know you are going to have just as much fun listening to our conversation. Kate is the co-host of the podcast Forever 35, which you can find wherever you listen to your favorite pods, and the author of the memoir, The Dead Moms Club. Her first novel, In a New York Minute, is a romantic comedy. I will rave about it further at the end of this episode, but it was absolutely one of my favorite reads of the year so far, and I can't recommend it enough. Learn more about Kate's work at katespencerwrites.com and follow her on Instagram at katespencer. Just in case you're not already, be sure you're following SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod. I am most active on Instagram, where I share behind the scenes of the podcast, previews about the fun things that are coming up, tidbits of my personal reading life, and lots and lots of dog photos. We all know that my golden retriever, Irving, is the real star of the show. Follow the podcast on Facebook by searching for the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. I am currently working on the reboot of the free SSR book club, so stay tuned for more on that. I want to give a big shout out to SSR's Patreon sponsors, who continue to love on the podcast with their dollars each and every month. In exchange, they get access to lots of goodies, including an invitation to our Discord channel, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, newsletters, and more. Plus, at the $5 and $10 level, patrons can be part of our SWR, that's Shit We Read Book Club, which I facilitate each and every month. In May, we are reading Black Cake, and it is not too late to jump in. If you are a super fan of the podcast, want to support it, and are also interested in these perks, check out www.patreon.com ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. 
Episode 193 is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, Unstable by Alexandra Ivey. Unstable is the third in a small town romantic thriller series and will take you straight through from spring into summer reading. Alexandra Ivey is a New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestseller, and now is a great time to check her out, especially if you're a fan of spooky reads, romance, or both. You can find Unstable wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. As you might know if you've been listening for a while, I am very specific with my audiobook listening. I tend to listen mostly to memoirs and nonfiction on audio because they feel like supersized podcasts. Recently, I have also discovered how great the audio format is for rereading adult books that I've already read in hardcover or paperback. Right now, I am listening to Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, which I read for the first time back in 2018. No matter what I'm listening to, though, if it's an audiobook, for me, it's coming from Libro.fm. Libro.fm is a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kate. Welcome to SSR. Hi, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I know you've been a busy lady recently with the release of your book, which we will talk about a little later on. I've already fangirled about it to you, and I can't wait to do that more and share it with all of the listeners. But in the meantime, we have to talk about a gal named Nancy Drew. And I have to say, I never get tired of talking about Nancy Drew on this podcast. Every time I read a Nancy Drew installment for the show, I'm like, I don't, I think I'm going to run out of things to say. <laughs> there are only so many think pieces I can quote. Like there are only so many times that I can feel this sense of being let down by a book that I thought was so great when I was a child. But oh, no, it, it is never old to me. Tell me everything about your Nancy Drew experience. Did you read her books when you were growing up? Were you a big mystery reader? And why did you want to revisit her for this episode? Okay, so I just want to first say, if you see me looking to my side, it's because I have my iPad open with the book because I did some highlighting while I was reading. Lovely. My kind of girl. I have the digital copy because the hard copy was hard to find. I couldn't get it at the library. And my kids don't have this one. So I have two daughters who are nine and 11. So I was a Nancy Drew reader when I was a kid. And then I have rediscovered Nancy Drew through my children, especially last summer. My daughter, who's now nine, she went on like a Nancy Drew 
reading binge so much so that she had to stop because she was getting scared of things like creaks and like we were she and i were just reading her nancy drew books night after night we spent a long time this summer living with my dad and my stepmom in new hampshire just for various like reasons of our family's wild schedule and covid that's where we were we live in los angeles and we went to the local used bookstore and my daughter was looking at nancy drew mysteries and a woman came up to her and was like do you like to read and my daughter was like yes and she was like here's ten dollars i'm a former librarian and i love to see kids looking at books so this is how my daughter she bought like four Nancy Drew books with this $10 and we've got, we went deep. That story sounds fake. Like I believe you when I you say it happened, you. but it feels like it's from a movie and this woman sounds like a mythical creature. And again, I believe you. I'm not questioning, I'm not <laughs> questioning your memory, but this just, it sounds too good to be true. I, well, first of all, my kid was walking around with money and I, and I was there with my dad and I was like, did you give her money to buy these books? And he was like, no, this woman just came up to her <laughs> and gave her the money. And it, it was, it was so moving because that never happens, you know, and I am always, I'm always assumed the worst too of people. I think that's just my jaded generation X energy. So to have a moment like that and to have my daughter be encouraged to read like that was just really moving but that that was a big nancy drew moment for us because she bought three nancy drew books and we went hard and i i forgot how much i kind of enjoyed them slash how ridiculous they are and i devoured them as a kid i am not a big mystery reader now i had a mom who was a big mystery reader and so i would read like stephen king at a very young and appropriate age. And Nancy Drew felt kind of like a gateway for that for me. But it's been interesting to read them again as an adult. Like you said, that feeling of like remembering a book to that gave you such incredible feelings as a child and then to read it as an adult and be like, I guess this is fine, but uh, like what? You know, that was, there was definitely that element, especially reading, you know, the bungalow mystery it seemed pretty obvious. Sometimes I am genuinely fooled in an Nancy Drew book. Like I always fall for the red herring, but this time I was like, come on. Yeah, I agree. So I too am not much of a mystery reader as an adult. And I always say that when I come to these books that are written for younger people for the podcast, I try really hard to take them at face value. And that can be especially difficult with mysteries or thrillers written for kids because Obviously, these mysteries and thrillers are not written to outsmart a 31-year-old person. They're <laughs> written to outsmart an 8 to 12 or 14-year-old person. And yet, I still do try to like not get ahead of the characters. Like I try to just take the information as it's presented to me. And that's kind of how I read adult books too. Like I really take in information as a reader more so than I try to like get ahead of where I'm supposed to be. And even I, doing everything I could to pretend that I was 10 years old, Felt like I had the bungalow mystery solved pretty solidly, probably about halfway through. So this is the third book in the series. And listeners, I'll be sure that I link the other Nancy Drew episodes that we've done in the show notes for this episode. And Kate, I will say that I, I too loved Nancy Drew when I was a kid, so much so that when I first conceived of the podcast, Nancy Drew was one of the properties that I was most excited to revisit because I was like, this was a character who got me so excited about reading. And this was a character who introduced me to these amazing literary heroines. And like, yeah. she's been cited by so many amazing women as an influence. And so I was pumped. I was like, this is, this is going to be it. I'm going to want to do a whole Nancy Drew series. Like it's going to be everything to me. 
whole podcast. Yeah, this is right. your area of expertise for moving forward. Right. I was like, I'm going to start a podcast network, and one of my <laughs> podcasts is going to be solely dedicated to yeah. Nancy Drew. And there are probably are Nancy Drew podcasts out there that are fantastic. So I believe the first Nancy Drew episode dropped like within the first month or so of the podcast, and we covered the first book in the series, The Secret of the Old Clock. And like you, when I read it, I was like, hmm. Well, yeah, it's a yeah, okay. It's a book. It's a book. <laughs> it's a book. Nancy's Nancy's a teen detective, a thin teen detective. That's important. Mm-hmm. But as I have read other books in the series, and they kind of like layer on top of each other, <laughs> that sense of like mm, it's a book has kind of shifted into like I don't know that I like this. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'm curious about this. Yeah. So I'll warn you that I, I bring that to this conversation because I have, I maybe now I have my like millennial jaded energy that's directed at Nancy Drew specifically because I've now read a couple of these books in the last couple of years and I've read about her a lot. I've read a lot of different sort of takes on her, good and bad. So I will warn you that I come into this conversation with perhaps a little bit too much information about Nancy, but I'm really excited to hear what your experience with this book as an adult was because it is just like always interesting to come back to a book for kids as an adult. Although because you have kids, I guess this is something that you do somewhat regularly. It is. And it is really interesting. You know, as you were talking, just circling back to that feeling of like a book that you loved that meant so much to you. And then you come back to it. And, and I had that experience with the boxcar, the first book of the boxcar children. And my, my kids read a lot of Babysitter's Club books, specifically the graphic novels, which the graphic novels are fantastic. And the, the graphic novels have kind of evolved the series a bit and the artists and the writers take, you know, they have definitely updated a bit. So it, it's just interesting to kind of reflect on the things that you were reading at the time and what they meant to you. And I do love getting to do that with my kids. And I also love getting to kind of read the books that they are excited about because they introduced me to new authors that I didn't know about. And that's been really incredible. Yeah, I, I can see how that would be a lot of fun. I don't have kids yet, but I always I always wonder, like, I don't know what I'll do if I have children who don't like to read. Like, I think that will be really hard for me because it seems like such a fun thing to be able to bond over. It is, but there's also the feeling of like when you want them to read the books that you loved or like, you know, you do try to influence them, especially if you were a big reader as a kid. There are these moments where you're like, here you go. I'm going to pass down to you this amazing thing and it's going to blow your mind. And then when your kid's kind of like, eh, <laughs> about a book that meant like that, like changed your worldview as a 10 year old, it can be really like not hurtful is the wrong word, but like there's a little bit of this letdown where you have, you realize you kind of have to like let your kids be their own readers. And that has been a very good lesson for me. You know, I definitely like tried to push Judy Bloom on my 11 year old and she did read, Are You There? God, it's me, Margaret. And, and was just kind of like, eh. It's a book. It's a book. Yeah, it like, didn't have the same revelatory experience that I had as a kid. So I try to rein in my expectations about passing on books that they love, books that I love. But that's why like getting to do your podcast is fun and fun to listen to because like as adults, we get to talk about it. You know, we don't have to share it with people who are currently children. Right. We can be honest. So let's do a little setup for Nancy Drew. Okay. 
for listeners who might need a refresher, or maybe you need a refresher, Kate. So Nancy Drew was launched in 1930 originally by the Stratemeyer Syndicate, which was essentially a book packager. And my original understanding was that Nancy Drew was introduced as this like feminist hero. But the truth was that Edward Stratemeyer, who was the head of the Stratemeyer Syndicate, really just wanted a female counterpart to the Hardy Boys series, which was also his. And he saw that the Hardy Boys was thriving and making him a lot of money. And so he introduced Nancy Drew. Carolyn Keene is the author who is credited with these books, but there is no person named Carolyn Keene. There were a lot of different ghostwriters that wrote these books. Mildred Wirt is the author who is credited with really putting together like the bulk of the first books in the series. And she was paid like basically nothing. At a certain point, I think she like wasn't making any royalties off of these books. Like the whole story is pretty wild. And the first set of books, again, started publication in 1930. But after Edward Stratemeyer died, his daughters started to rewrite them in 1959. And they republished them because the original books were extremely racist. And Nancy was like really tough and kind of physical. And their goal with the rewrites was to take out some of the particularly harmful racist stereotypes and to make her a little bit softer. They updated her car. There were a couple of other things that were changed. And so The Bungalow Mysteries, again, was the third book in the series to come out. It was the final book that Edward Stratemeyer himself actually edited before he passed away. And it was also part of, it sounds to me like they released like three books at once when they started the series to like test market it. Wikipedia calls it a breeder set, which I've Mm. never heard of before. But The Bungalow Mystery was part of that set. And then it was re-released in 1960. It's sort of unique in the re-release in that it's actually longer and more complicated than the original book, which was published in 1930. Often the reissued books were kind of like streamlined and faster. But this book, for whatever reason, the Stratemeyer sisters decided to make more complex. Like they added a few layers. I think originally there was really only like one mystery subplot and then they added a second one for this one. So that's kind of the setup. Did you have any idea about like some of the history of Nancy Drew? I didn't when I started the podcast. So I feel like I'm always learning a lot. You know what's weird? I went deep on like the Carolyn Keene pseudonym. Like I forget exactly. I think I had looked up Mildred Benson. And I think it's because we had the same birthday. And then I got very interested in kind of this idea that all these people were writing Nancy Drew and what that meant. But so I so recently I was on one of my like, you know, ADHD brain. That is an actual diagnosis. I'm not speaking out of turn about ADHD. I do have it. And my brain will sometimes just like deep dive intensely. And so I did go on a deep dive of Carolyn Keene, but I wasn't fully aware of the kind of history of the books, especially when it comes to the revisions. And and I would be interested to know if they, like, it's fascinating to me. I can see when some of these were revised looking on Wikipedia, but it appears a lot of them haven't really been revised since the 70s. And it does seem to me like they could go through a major revision again. <laughs> you know, like every detail as I was reading this, I just was like, oh, ooh, 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 okay. Ooh, what? You know, there's just so which is which you obviously know going into a book that is almost a hundred years old, but still, I think it would be. I still love the idea of this like teen girl detective. It's such a fun 
conceit. And I love, I do, I mean, Nancy Drew is still kind of so iconic. So I would be here for like the Nancy Drew of 2022. I agree. And I wonder if part of the reason that that hasn't happened yet is because there were these Nancy Drew spinoff series. Like I remember when I was a kid, the Nancy Drew Files, like that had come Mm -hmm, out more recently. And I do feel like they were publishing into the Nancy Drew name more recently. And it's almost like they're like, oh, we don't have to worry about the old ones now. Like we have these trendy new versions (laughs) that the kids can check out. But I I agree again. Like I think that the conceit, the premise of this series is really great. I did want to share a quote from an essay that I think I've shared lines from in previous Nancy Drew episodes, but it talks about the whiteness of Nancy Drew and Mm. kind of like where there is room to grow if we wanted to run with this idea of Nancy Drew, again, as this like badass detective. So this comes from a piece in Electric Lit that's called The Not-So-Hidden Racism of Nancy Drew. And I will say that this book, less so than the others that we've revisited for the podcast, like I, I didn't pick up on as men, as much like lingering outright racism. I think there's classism prevalent in pretty much all of the Nancy Drew mm-hmm. books that I've read so far. But for what it's worth, like this book, except for the absence of race, which is its own problem, um, we didn't see any of the like racist outright stereotypes that I've noticed in other books we've read for the show, which given the fact that like the original books were edited to get rid of racist references. Like it just goes to show how much they needed revision. So this references the Little House on the Prairie series and says, just like in the case of Wilder's Little House series, there are no easy answers on how to approach its long history and racist past. To leave those texts in the past may feel right for some and like erasure for others. The ugliness of America's racism is something that cannot be swept under the rug, yet without the proper context and guidance, particularly for children, the revival of these stories continues a cycle of pain and re-traumatization. And then it talks about a new graphic novel adaptation that came out in 2018, but goes on to say, even with this movement in the right direction, away from the stereotypical Jeff Tuckers and towards a colorful LGBTQ-friendly River Heights, the question I am left with is when, if ever, will we see a Black Nancy, an Asian Nancy, a queer Nancy? When color only appears at the edges, marginalized groups remain marginalized. And I think like, in the call that I would passionately make for a reimagined Nancy Drew, it would be a to like get like let's get rid of this whitewashed River Heights, like it, oh, please, yeah, because it's not enough to just like not be racist. Like we also need to show the different kinds of people than like Nancy and Carson Drew, but also to like I don't know, let's just shake Nancy herself up and and fill her in as a real human being who represents communities that have so often been marginalized. Yeah, I think, you know, what you point out about how they quote went through and tried to remove the the racism in the book, I think they also just whitewashed it further. And there's no representation at all. And, And I hate this in knowing these were things that I consumed without understanding or as a as a kid that even flagging is weird. You know, like my own internalized racism and the systems I was growing up with, like, oh, this, it wasn't, you know, it, it was weird and it was wrong, but it didn't register to me as a child. And, and I have like deep regret over that. And it's something that we do, I do try to talk about with my kids when we read books like this. And this happened with reading Betsy Tacey. That's just popping up. Just, you know, you read these old books that you fondly remember 
And then you read them and you're like, oh, as an adult who has hopefully grown much more aware of things like, you know, ingrained racism and stereotypes and misogyny and all these books we were reading as kids. And it can lead to some challenging discussions slash a decision of whether or not you even continue to consume it or introduce it to your kids, especially when there are so many incredible, much more diverse representative books being made these days. I mean, there there was even something in this book that kept coming up for me, which was this obsession with the black foreign car. Mm. I don't know if this stood out to you, but the criminals were driving a black foreign car and it was everyone in the neighborhood um, around the lake like oh yeah i saw that foreign car and i just knew it couldn't have been somebody from here and like it's just that othering like it just is lingering in the context of the story at all times and i thought that was it just stood out to me so like i highlighted it in my little i'm looking at my quote, notebook of my highlighted <laughs> moments in that book. And that was something I highlighted because they kept repeating it. And it was just, there was something unsettling about it to me. That's very well said. And I think that that's a great example of something that Nancy does throughout this installment and through a lot of the books. But I really noticed it, especially in the bungalow mystery, where Nancy is so observant, which I think is like, of course, one of the things that makes her such a great detective. But it also felt to me in this book that Nancy was so quick to point out something that was different about a person that she was observing or a situation that she found herself in, and then in turn to make a very quick judgment or assumption about what that difference meant with respect to the mystery. And everybody around her sort of gives her permission to do that yes. and is on board with whatever judgment call she makes. And it makes it very easy for her to solve these mysteries. Like there's very little like real, I'm, I mean, I hate to break it to everybody, but there's not a lot of like real questioning going on in Nancy Drew's sleuthing, which I get because again, this is a book for children, but so much of her like perceived skill as a detective is really just about her being judgmental of things like a foreign car or what I noticed a lot in this book, like observations about money and like yes. how wealthy somebody is and the conflation of somebody's wealth with their character or their morality. Like when she's evaluating these different suspects in the mystery, she outright says several times like, oh, this person seems like well-dressed and well-mannered. So they're a good person and couldn't possibly be a suspect in this mystery. And all of that like proves out, like there's no surprise here. Yeah. And I mean, just Nancy's privilege as a rich white woman, you know, nobody questions her. There's like a real, real group think that always happens with like her and her friends and her, you know, it just, Nancy comes into the situation with a lot of privilege, mm -hmm. you know, like, and, and even just when the, the like Lieutenant at the end is like, you're right, Nancy, like, <laughs> you know, this wouldn't kind of good, this kind of good fortune and the ease with which she moves through life is hinges deeply on like her race and class privilege, right? Yes. And and to your point about the lieutenant at the end of the book, we had a really in-depth discussion. I want to say it was in that episode about the mystery at Lilac Inn about the role of law enforcement in these books mm. and Nancy's chumminess with law enforcement. And I think we recorded this episode. I mean, time has all blended together, but I want to say we recorded it in the summer of 2020. And so obviously we were having a lot of conversations about law enforcement in our country. And 
my guests and I it was um, the the hosts of Novel Pairings, Chelsea and Sarah, and we like couldn't get over how many times in this book Nancy was like, "Oh, like let's just call the police. Like we'll call the police. The police will come." And it happens the same way in this book where I, I mean, I really should have kept a tally of how many times Nancy is like, oh yeah, like we'll just call the police. I mean, I'm pretty sure she wants to call the police in different jurisdictions. Like it's not just in her hometown, everywhere she goes, she wants to call the police. And look, that is a really great goal for us to have in this country and anywhere. Like it should be the case that any human being, no matter where they are, should feel safe and comfortable calling the police and feel like they can trust that the police will show up and protect them. And I'm not here saying that that's not the case in many places or for many people. But I also think that we've learned over the last couple of years that that isn't always true in every community and for every citizen. And I just, I think it's telling that in this book, like Nancy not only feels comfortable calling the police no matter where she is, but she also like feels 100% confident that no matter what she tells the police when they arrive, she will be trusted and not just trusted, but they will like follow her directions. And she's like a white woman who has solved two mysteries. Yes. At this point, like at the end, they can't find the um, like the bank statements. I forget what they what the name what they call them in the book, but like all basically all the money. And then Nancy's like, "Oh, I know where they are. There's these suitcases have false bottoms." And the lieutenant's like, "Oh yes, of course, Nancy. I should have thought of that." And it's just like, "Man, what? Like this? Come on, yeah, yeah. Like there's not even there's not even any question that." she might not be believed. Like nobody ever questions Nancy. Her friends don't ever, her dad, you know? And like the fact that, you know, what's um her, not house servant, but she Hannah. does like, yeah. Like there's that class structure ingrained in the book too of like, Nancy is essentially employer to this older woman. It's just, there is a lot of weirdness in in the book to have to kind of dig through, which I'm actually really grateful for the opportunity to do because I do think, you know, as a white person, you can still read these things and, you know, they're so steeped in in white privilege that reflects your own. You don't, you, things that, that should stand out to you don't. And so, you know, as like someone who's trying to consider that both as a writer and a reader and a human, I do think it is really valuable to have these conversations. Right. And I want to acknowledge my privilege in that, like, I would feel comfortable in an emergency situation calling the police in my city. And I would feel like I would be cared for. And so I'm not here to like rail against the Nancy Drew series as somebody who like, can't see that this is reflective of my own experience in a lot of ways. But I do think it raises important questions about like, when these books are written in 1930, and then revised in 1960, they certainly were blind to very real things that were happening in our country and beyond. And like, unfortunately, that is still very much the case. So I'm happy that we get a chance to talk about it too. I do want to talk about Nancy's dad because you mentioned him, Kate. Before I do that, I need to acknowledge that your dog was just in the room. <laughs> yes. And I I really had to work hard not to squeal because your dog was looking into the camera. Oh. As though, yeah, like looking me straight in the eyes. And I, I feel like... <laughs> This was a fake dog because it's like a teddy bear. Yeah, she's really ridiculous. I have two dogs. One is a rescue mutt terrier chihuahua, like just true mix of a million things. And for various reasons, the dog we just recently got is a 
Labradoodle, which is like, to me, a dog I kind of hated until we got one ourselves. <laughs> and now I'm like all in, but she does look ridiculous. Like she's very much of a Muppet yes. sort of dog. And she's got a real mischievous vibe all the time. Like she came in here to steal my shoes. I'm pretty sure. Cause I kick them off when I work and then uh, and then, you know, I realized it and then she left in a huff. So she is she is very cute and she's a really good office dog. She will come and hang out and, and listen. I was going to use the word Muppet to describe her. Oh, so, such a Muppet. Oh, such a Muppet. Okay, I'll I'll stop talking about your dog. And no, no. Nancy Drew, but she Anytime. is precious. Okay, let's talk about Carson Drew. Here's my main question about Carson Drew. And maybe you can enlighten me on this. Is a lawyer and a detective, is that the same thing? No. Okay, great. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. I'm confused about this too. Like the fact that he's a lawyer does not then in my brain lead me to think like, oh, okay, yeah, of course he would have his teen daughter help him. I, I don't, nothing about Carson Drew makes any sense to me is I guess where I've landed after reading this book. Yes. The cases that he is on do not seem much like the cases that my like friends and family members who are lawyers are touching. It, they're literal detective cases. And so I'm curious as to why Edward Stratemeyer or whoever else was involved in making these decisions chose to make him a lawyer and not a detective. Maybe it's because they like didn't want him to steal Nancy's thunder. But it seems to me that like what we're really dealing with is like a father-daughter detective duo. Yes. Not so much like a lawyer who asks his daughter to help him solve mysteries disguised as legal cases. I mean, truly, I think... Uh, now I am really dating myself, but a, a franchise that does this better is Inspector Gadget, mm. where he's an inspector and then, what is it, his niece, his daughter? I haven't watched the show in, you know, approximately like 38 years, but helps him solve the crimes. So Carson feels like somewhat arbitrary to me at times. And while I kind of appreciate his like slightly open-minded vibe, to me also like in my brain i'm i'm just like writing romance stories for carson in my head and that just comes from being a writer and a reader of romance but you know like hannah's mentioned and then his secretary is mentioned like he has all these like women kind of working for him i don't know something about carson just rubs me the wrong way yeah i mean it's like half of an ick half of like oh i want to make carson like this character in my head and figure out what's going on with him but yeah i i don't i don't quite know why being an attorney would then like cause him to have a daughter who solves mysteries and slash have him solve mysteries but again my profession is a writer and a podcaster i know very little about what it means to be an attorney so perhaps i'm in the wrong well, lawyers out there, if we are wrong, please let us know. Please. If, if you feel as though reading Nancy Drew as a child was formative in your decision to become a lawyer. Oh, wow. Yes. That would be huge. I'd love to hear about that experience. We know a few other things about Carson Drew. He's hot, I think. Like, he I think seems hot. Agree. He's yes. a hot guy. He, much like Nancy, feels very confident in his ability to sort of suss out a situation and jump to massive conclusions as a result of those observations. You got to love the confidence, I guess. He truly moves through the world with the confidence of a middle-aged hot 
white lawyer. Yep. Um, so I'm glad that that he is really inhabiting that for us. <laughs> he definitely does. And then the other thing that fascinates me about Carson Drew, and I remember it from the second book in the series as well, the title of which escapes me right now, but there's a similar ending where Carson Drew is like, he's imprisoned or like bound or like generally like physically harmed in some way, which happens in the bungalow mystery as well. And then like five minutes later, he's fine. And he's able to like walk out of the basement or go like do whatever Nancy needs him to do. So in addition to being hot, he's also like really tough. <laughs> like borderline superhuman. Yeah, he really superhuman for sure. Yeah, I mean, I he's, he's just kind of a mystery to me. Honestly, I would think I would like the books better if he wasn't involved. Mm. And I think he's there to add some like legitimacy to the fact that Nancy's like cruising around in her convertible solving crimes all the time with like a suitcase in the trunk, like, you know, making different friends wherever she goes. There seems to be like, there, there needs to be some justification as to why like one, she has this independence and two, she has this interest. So perhaps he's just like a plot device. Mm initially he doesn't add much to anything for me in in terms of like a, a character again other than because i'm 42 now i'm like oh i bet he's uh, like he's probably hot he's single like who could i set him up with <laughs> there's like, gotta I'm, be a neighbor <laughs> you know, like i am closer in age to carson drew than i am to nancy so now i'm like drawn to the adult characters in this series yeah i mean he's widowed like he works a lot he needs some romantic assistance for sure and again, like, I hate how they keep introducing these, like, female employee characters in his inner circle. I don't know. Something about that just kept annoying me. It's very much like, you know, Alice and the Brady Bunch. Like, this idea that these families would always have some sort of, like, helper. And maybe that is the case. Again, I'm a child of the 80s. This did not exist for me. Something you mentioned a few moments ago reminded me of a pattern that I was picking up throughout this particular nancy book that i wanted to mention and i think it relates to carson drew and as you said he sort of like lends this legitimacy to nancy's work and it like makes sense that she as an 18 year old teenager would be living with her dad something that i was noticing in in this book is that there's kind of a lack of consistency about how she is described in terms of her like age and maturity oh interesting it felt to me as if there were moments when she was very explicitly identified as a teenager or as like a teenage detective. There were other times when I felt like she read really young to me because of the dynamic with her dad. Not to say that like people can't have those kinds of relationships with their parents as they get older, but there's just something in their relationship that I was like, okay, here she's feeling younger. And then there were also times when she seems like a full-blown independent adult. Again, not to say that these things can't all exist, and I'm sure many of us can speak to times in our own lives and, and in our own childhoods and adolescences when we were like not quite sure how old we were or how old people saw us as. But there were moments in this book where it felt sort of like a plot device, like you were saying, like there were moments when it was more convenient for her to be older and moments when it was more convenient for her to be more dependent on her dad. I believe the books that were originally published in 1930 had Nancy younger. They aged her up for the rewrites because they wanted her to be able to like drive and move through the world on her own. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. 
Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, you definitely, there was a moment where she was like, fortunately, I had my overnight bag in my suitcase and it felt very, <laughs> it felt like she was a, a fully formed adult in that moment. But then she is so reliant on like being home and her relationship with her father. And the other thing I kind of feel like is that I, I wish Nancy Drew could be a detective without needing the like approval or slash the like, like the legitimacy that her father seems to provide in many situations, right? Like, of course, we're talking about this like independent, cool girl detective. And then of course, it's like, oh, but like, it's because her like rich white dad is already doing the crimes. Like Nancy, you know, I would love it if Nancy was just doing this on her own. Mm -hmm. And her dad was like, I don't know, like a chef or what, you know, what have you. Yeah. What, what have you. The kind of tropes that they play into with Nancy is really, and, and other women in the book too, is really interesting to me. I'm kind of thinking specifically of Laura. Oh, yeah. Who, I mean, first, Nancy's way too trusting. She becomes best friends with people in harrowing. She also goes through harrowing situations like once a day and nobody ever questions the fact that it's traumatic slash she probably needs therapy. Yeah, I mean, the bottom of the first page, she's already in peril. Like the bottom of the first page, they are out yes. for a casual boat ride and there's a storm and her boat runs into a giant log. It, it, we really jump right in. Jump right in and then it's like, and the boat just sunk. And you like, there's no, they just rush to it. So uh, there's a lot with Nancy that I, you know, anyway, there's a lot of beef I have, but I thought this Laura character was so fascinating because she just, she's portrayed as like almost pathetic in a way. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for. I felt sympathy for her. Um, she's this a girl who I believe she's 18 and attended boarding school and her mom passed away and now she's been passed on to these guardians as their ward. But she's she's helpless and it doesn't seem to be because of her grief. It's just she just strikes me as like kind of clueless and like a poorly developed character. And it really bugged me. Also a device. Also a device. I mean, clearly she drives the whole story, essentially. Yeah, I couldn't figure out how old she was. And maybe I missed that she was 18, but I had questions about that too because, and again, we are not experts in the law, but <laughs> I was like, if she's 18 or older, like why why is the relationship with these shady guardians such a driver in this book? Like I was like, I would have bought it much more if I felt like she was a child. But then again, if she was a child, yes. then she couldn't have saved them from <laughs> from their like shipwreck. Right. Just so randomly. you can't have it both ways. No, she wouldn't be out there boating or I forget where Laura was when they their ship first went down. But it's it's just such a weird, I don't know. She's like a strange character. And Nancy also becomes her best friend instantly. You know, a lot of this book has like strange clueless vibes to me. Like she kind of reminds me of Ty and Clueless and Nancy being the share, but they just take in Laura as if, you know, they meet her once and suddenly she's their their best friend. I don't know. It, it was weird to me. Yeah, I wonder if part of it is a generational thing and I look, it's hard for me to defend anything about this because if I haven't made it clear, a lot of this book just confounds me, but I do feel like <laughs> like my 88-year-old grandmother will sometimes like every person she meets is her friend. Mm. You know, she lives in like a, an assisted living facility and every person that she comes into contact with, I mean, she's been living at this facility for like 15 years. 
every single person who works there, oh, my friend. Oh, I love that. Oh, my friend. You know, everybody's her friend. And she's always been like that. And I wonder if part of it is like the, the lengths that people had to go to in this era to sustain relationships because like they couldn't text or they couldn't easily call each other. Yes. So even like in her first meeting with Laura in this book, Nancy's first thought is not like, oh, let me get your number or follow you on Instagram. It's like, <laughs> how about you come visit me? And to me as a teen in the 90s and aughts, I'd be like, ew, like I don't want this stranger staying at my house. Like I'll just, I am you. And I'm sure in 2022, teens would probably be even less comfortable with some like rando coming for a sleepover and would just rather follow each other on TikTok. But I would imagine that in the time when these books were written and in this like very small slice of American history that is being preserved here, there's this like idyllic nature of, oh, we'll meet and we will like each other and then you'll come like have a weekend with my family. Yes, that's that's such a good point. And even just this idea that Laura could be orphaned and not even know who her guardians yeah are like she's never she, like she had never met them and so she couldn't recognize that can, can can i do a spoiler alert can i spoil i forget what you you instructed me on this please do go forth the people who laura believes are her guardians are imposters they are con artists and i also just want to point out that the name of the male con artist is stumpy and that really just set me off I couldn't handle the name every time I was reading it and he, and they referenced Stumpy. For some reason, it really got under my skin. Stumpy Dowd. Stumpy Dowd. I mean, what a name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, Laura had never met these people that her mother had entrusted her to. And so, you know, that there is, you know, that would never obviously occur. It would probably not occur in the same way now. You would at least have seen a picture perhaps of your future guardians. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think with, with all of the books we talk about on the podcast that were published years and years ago, I'm, I always try to be careful about like sort of separating what is a generational difference mm. from what is like, I don't want to know, I don't know that I want to use the phrase moral difference or like just something that's impossible to believe. I think there's probably a mix of both in this book. But to your point, Kate, yes, one of the kind of core mysteries that Nancy is chasing down sort of accidentally in this book is the mystery of Laura's guardians. And we have to mention the other sort of parallel mystery, which as often seems the case in Nancy Drew books, has to do with inheritances and stock theft and stock embezzlement. Theft. Yes, stock theft. And I have to say, I don't know if you remember this from your Nancy Drew days, Kate, but you would be shocked by how many teens are apparently fascinated by like estate law because <laughs> if these books are any indication, like it is a number one interest. Every time I read a Nancy Drew book, I'm like, did I, first of all, did I understand any of this? And did I care? I don't think that I did. I mean, if you were to take these books at face value as a representation of like what's hip with the teens, you would think that everybody wanted to be a lawyer and not a detective because that's all that we talk about. And also property ownership yes. and like who has the right to what like bungalow or cabin or what have you. Like there's always issues with property in yes. Nancy Drew books. Um, my, my daughter and I read, oh my gosh, let me look real quick. I think it's book number five. Oh yeah, The Secret of Shadow Ranch. Like uh -huh. that's also kind of a property. It, it, it's, people are always fighting over like land 
homes, inheritance, or stocks. Yes. And again, it, spe it speaks to the inherent privilege mm -hmm. of, of Nancy. And I think maybe the assumed privilege of a lot of readers, which is that like everybody's in a position to have to like fight for their inheritance of jewelry. And like, that's just not reality for everyone. Well, and at the end of this book, so the this whole book is about Laura's jewels and the, well, not the whole book, but one of the biggest, you know, mysteries is about Laura's jewels that she inherited from her dead mother and how Stumpy and his partner are trying to steal them essentially. And at the end, Laura just gives Nancy like an emerald. I'm trying to pull it up here. She gives her like one of the rings and it's just like, well, here you go. Thanks so much. And okay, bye. Yeah, bye. Like, here's a, an amazing piece of jewelry. That just to me, again, it was like just the exchange that was that was so accepted. All of it was just so strange. It's strange. And and we've given Nancy a hard time. Uh, much of which I think is deserved. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff under the surface and not even so much under the surface in this book. But we also, of course, have to just take a moment to acknowledge like, that she has had a huge impact on a lot of women, especially in this country. So many people have talked about her in interviews. Women like Sandra Day O'Connor, Sonia Sotomayor, Gail King, Barbara Walters, uh, I believe Hillary Clinton's talked about her. Like a lot of really powerful women kind of from no matter what background you're talking about from across the political spectrum, from across every sort of walk of, of fame and success, like have they've talked about Nancy Drew. So Kate, I guess my question to you, especially now that I know that you have two daughters mm. who are reading this series, like what do you think is of value here? Like, what is the enduring appeal of a character like Nancy? And how do you feel about the fact that, like, she has been such an influence on women over the decades and could potentially inform your own daughter's sort of understanding of, like, what's possible for them? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I mean, there are so many things that I do like about some of you know some of the moments in the book or some of the 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 way that nancy operates i love that she relies on her friends i love the friendships in her book i love that she's most often too busy to date not really get, giving any like time or attention to the many gentlemen callers who are always <laughs> like in awe of her like nancy's just always kind of like all right like i'm just not that she's just not that into it i mean perhaps and again perhaps if we were really to dig in is nancy does nancy even identify as straight who knows yeah. you know like this is obviously just presumed kind of because this is such a heteronormative kind of book but there are things i do love the idea of this like independent woman like for example in this book where she's just you know driving her convertible at night and there's a tree down in the road and nancy just tries to move it like she she does this kind of self-confidence and assumption that she can just kind of handle anything i really do love and it that those even though it's 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 very satisfying to kind of really pick at what's going on behind all that but i do think just as things to kind of take away from a quick read this idea that she can quickly solve things is very satisfying i think it's also just nice to have like there being a girl heroine in a story so those are the things that i do that i do like to take away from the books and i mean also more so i i I like the idea of my kids reading mysteries. That is really fun to me. I really enjoyed 
a mystery as a child, this kind of that feeling that you get, it's a little bit scary. You're also trying to solve it. It feels impossible to determine and and the fear that the character may never solve it. All these things are such excellent sensations to have as a reader that that I also really love as a takeaway from these books. Mm -hmm. I echo all of that. I think my favorite thing about Nancy is that as much as she has these moments of fragility and like dependency on others, especially men, she also is really physical and active. Like she has very specific moments in this book where she's like jumping in to move heavy things or carry big things. And as much as it's hard to believe that like all of these qualities can live in one character, depending on what's convenient to the story, I do appreciate the fact that like we see here a girl who can do it all. Like she can be tough. She also like knows how to have good manners at dinner. Like she's kind of like a Barbie doll in that way. And there are of course problems associated with that. But I do feel like growing up, I didn't necessarily see or read about a lot of heroines who are this physical and tough and strong. And there's certainly value to that. And I appreciate that as an adult. I'm curious on the whole, Kate, what this experience was like for you. It sounds like you have revisited Nancy Drew over the last couple of years with your kids. So it's not like this was a total shock to you. What has it looked like over the last couple of years for you to get back in touch with Nancy Drew, especially as it compares to your memories of her from when you were a kid? Well, the first thing that stuck out to me, actually, reading reading this book alone without reading it with a kid was interesting. And Nancy reminded me of, there's a Gillian Flynn, who's the author of Gone Girl and Sharp Objects. And she has an article about like the cool girl. I don't know if this is ringing a bell for you. Yes. But this kind of like all-encompassing, like cool girl who can do it all. And she's like, hot and has the body that's expected and she's smart and but you know and that Nancy kind of has that vibe to me there's not m- often much that's relatable about Nancy and i felt that especially as a grown up woman going back and reading this now i don't feel like i connect with her you know i i think if i were really to think about like how i would want a teen girl detective to be insecure at times and questioning if what she's doing is ethically appropriate and is she spending too much time doing this and not like you know are her friends getting annoyed because she's always detectiving i mean there's so there's to me like there's not much that actually feels very human like nancy could all almost be like a sociopath like let's be honest And the other thing that really stood out to me when I was reading this is that I wanted more. There's like a genuine lack of detail that I think has been noted, you know, many times throughout history about these books, but they just, they kind of just like breeze over things and transition from scenes and moments in a way that really kind of left me having that empty feeling, like something, like a big chunk of information was kind of missing. And that was, as a reader, just generally like annoying. Yeah, especially because there is so much to the premise. It's like you kind of want the world to be filled in more. Um, I agree with all of that. And I will link to that essay that you're talking about, the Gillian Flynn piece, because that's a great piece and I think speaks to a lot of my own feelings about Nancy Drew. So thank you for jogging my memory about that. I will link it in the show notes. Of course, of course. Other than Nancy Drew's 
the Bungwo mystery. What have you been reading lately, Kate, that you would recommend to our listeners? I'd also just like to note that the puppy has returned. Oh, she has. Oh, yeah, there she is. There and she, <laughs> she really is. Penny. Is, Penny. Oh, her name's Penny. Her name's Penny. <gasps> Penny, you are just delightful. Penny, what have you been reading lately? Well, you know, Penny does she has access to the lower bookshelf part of my office and she will try to like pull books off to chew and i have to be like you know what i love someone who devours a book but not Uh you know not like that i wanted to shout out two books that i um really love written by people that i am friends with but i would have loved them regardless um and i come to this kind of from the two genres that I have personally written books in, um, the first one is a romance uh, by my friend Alyssa Sussman. It come, it just came out in April. It's called Funny You Should Ask. I actually have it right here, and the f- full copy. And uh, it's just such a well-written, smart, moving story, moving romance between a journalist and an actor. And it goes back and forth in time between 10 years ago when she first profiled him in a piece that kind of went viral because there was a real like, did they or didn't they hook up aspect to it. And it's the piece that made her whole career, but has also, because of that, she's kind of always questioned, you know, her ability. And then 10 years later, she's divorced. He's kind of, uh, you know, been through rehab and they, she comes back to interview him again as kind of this like 10 years later after this you know very famous cover story that she wrote about him and what happens with their reunion and kind of discussing their connection that they initially had 10 years prior and how they've changed as adults and kind of just what it means to you know be an imperfect human i mean the characters are both incredibly imperfect but also as they age, really more settled in who they are. And I found that really moving. And also just, Liz is a really sharp writer. Like the writing is just so on point. It's a really just like, also just like a fun, breezy romance to read. So that is one recommendation I have. I really, I loved it. I That's a book that I, like my dog, devoured. And then <laughs> um, I wanted to share another book that just came out by Marissa Renee Lee. And this is a kind of memoir slash, I don't use the word self-help, but I, I would say like, sell a guide slash support book about grief. It's called Grief is Love. And Marissa and I originally connected because we both lost our moms to cancer. And I wrote a memoir called The Dead Moms Club about grief and that experience. And she has just written this really succinct, beautiful, empathetic book about her own grief and her experience losing her mom and kind of connecting it to much larger experiences of of grief and i think it's it's just like the book that i would give to every person who is experiencing any sort of grief and loss and one thing that i really appreciate is she highlights the experience specifically throughout the book about how black women experience grief and i thought that was really poignant and informative you know, especially for me reading it as a, as a white person, I just, I just, I really valued the way she was able to also connect how we're permitted to grieve and connect it to capitalism and the way that we're just kind of assumed to get back to it and, you know, continue to be productive when we really don't make much space to grieve uh, in our society. And it's just, it's just like, a, it's just beautiful. It's just, it's a, it's a grief book everyone should have because we're all going to experience grief at some point in our lives. So have it on your shelf ready for you or get it if it's something you need right now. It's just great. Well, those both sound like fantastic recommendations for very different reasons. And I will make sure that I link them 
in the show notes for this episode. They'll also be linked in SSR's Instagram story. Go check them out on bookshop.org. Okay, Kate, we've come to the part of the program where (laughs) I need to just like worship your book because In a New York Minute is easily one of my favorite reads of the year so far. I told Come you this on. before we oh my I know gosh. I'm serious. I'm serious. And I'm not just saying this because we've been talking for the last hour <sighs> or because you have a very cute Muppet dog. <laughs> I told you this before we started recording, but I sat in a chair yesterday and ignored a lot of major responsibilities and just read the last 200 pages of your book. And had the best time. Like it was one of those reading experiences where I put I put it down. And I was like, that was so fun. Like I haven't had that much fun in a long time. So I will continue to sing its praises. And I'm so thrilled for you that it's out in the world. But is there anything else that you want to share about it or also about your podcast, Forever 35? Like you just have a lot of cool things going on right now. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. And I guess I'll just toss it to you to talk about book, podcast, anything you want. Well, thank you so much for that incredible endorsement. I'm so grateful that you spent time reading it and that it felt good. All I've ever wanted as a writer is to, especially as starting to work in fiction, is create books that leave people with that kind of like soaring feeling, that like that good feeling, because books have been that for me in so many moments in my life. And it's why I, I love reading and I specifically love reading romance. And so that means so much to me as an author. And yes, the book is called In a New York Minute. It is a romantic comedy. I have been really flattered when people write to me and they say like, I don't ever read romance. And I read your book and I really I really loved romance. Um, so perhaps it's a romance book for people who also don't really normally read romance. But yeah. it is a very fun romantic comedy kind of inspired by a lot of my love of old romantic comedy movies like When Harry Met Sally. And it's set in New York City, my old hometown, and uh, tells the story of two people who meet in a very unlikely way. uh, And it goes viral. And even though it looks like they're falling in love in the moment, it's actually the exact opposite. But of course, through the magic of New York City, they're brought together again and again. And course, there's a you know happy ending there. And I'm also the co-host of a podcast called Forever 35, which um, we're now in our fourth year? No, fifth year? Oh my goodness. We've been doing it for a while. And our tagline is that it's about the things uh, we do to take care of ourselves. So we really are exploring what it means to practice self-care. And on our show, that means anything from like having a pimple on your butt and how to deal with it to figuring out like what retinol to use on your face to understanding how to find a therapist and getting your financial (laughs) issues in order and relationships. And it's, you know, we are over 35, hence the tongue in cheek name of the show. Um, We have three episodes a week, so you can find that wherever you get podcasts. And it's a real, um, it's a really fun, wonderful community uh, that kind of exists with the podcast. So we welcome everyone. Well, I know we have some overlap in our listenership I already think we because do. I've heard from people who love your show, but I think we should just expand that overlap. I will make sure that there are links to Forever 35 and of course to In a New York Minute in all things SSR this week. Kate, this has been such a treat. I really enjoyed talking with you and I just so appreciate your time. Well, I just want to say thank you. And I just have to say every time I see the name SSR, I am filled with flashbacks to the late <laughs> 80s, picking out my SSR book, which really did fuel my love of reading. So I love that you call that back in such a perfect way. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye. 
SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>